Hi, I'm Max Bergman. And I'm Donatien Rui. And this is The Europhile, a podcast where we look at Europe through a Washington lens. Welcome to another episode of The Europhile. Today, we will cover the European Union's efforts to continue funding Ukraine in its war against Russia. And after that, we'll turn to an amazing conversation we had with Marcus Roberts, who's chief of data at YouGov, to discuss different polling trends ahead of a major election year in Europe, but also in other parts of the world. We hope you enjoy the show. Okay, Denisienne, we are waiting for both the EU and the US uh, to make progress on uh, passing Ukraine funding, which hopefully happens soon. Maybe we'll start with Europe and where the state of play is right now with Ukraine funding. I think waiting for the European Council summit uh, on February 1st, but but maybe you could update us on where you think thing, things stand right now. Yes. So as we saw in December, this 50 billion euros that was set for Ukraine was not approved at the European Council. So now we're looking at two different things happening at the same time. On the one hand, European leaders are still trying to convince basically Viktor Orban to remove his block of this big chunk of funding in a way that doesn't allow him to have leverage every year voting on this support for Ukraine. Because what Orban asked for is the same, he says, I'm okay to, for 50 billion euros, but I want it in annual tranches so that we have to vote on it every year, which means he gets leverage to get things approved once a year at the very least. So that's something that a lot of European leaders, including the commission, would really like to avoid. And it's also bad for Ukraine's long-term planning. Just generally having it year by year uh, is, is just not a great way for them to plan. There, and that for this, there has to be unanimity for this to be EU, EU funding. So it's really important for uh, European leaders to get Orban to approve this funding. There's also discussions of having this still on the European side funding uh, bucket. There's discussions of having it be a two and two, so a mid-year review that would happen in this four-year support package. I'm not sure that's a lot better because that still gives a point of leverage to Orban, but it's a little bit better, I suppose, than annual approval. And he's also, and others are also discussing the possibility of an emergency break where a member state could activate the break if there's concerns or would like to debate part of the funding package. So that's the EU side. There's also discussions happening in parallel in case they cannot unlock this thing with Viktor Orban on non-EU funding or a collection of EU member states doing this on their side. That would be a way to bypass Hungary. Uh, it could look something like raising common debt with national guarantees for an EU budget, uh, creating some special vehicle that would disperse the loans and the grants. But that would be up to 20 billion roughly is the number I've seen, which is nowhere near, of course, the 50 billion they'd like to approve for this. So, and that's just more complicated. They would, this is not the preference to do something like this. And from reporting, the EU has uh, promised or told Ukraine they would get this funding approved by March at the latest. So we're on a pretty tight timeline here. Uh, so that's, that's the EU landscape. I mean, I guess the way I see it is that 
you know, the EU wanted to get this 50 billion done in December, Orban held it hostage, blocked it. Uh, the EU then says, well, okay, if you block it, we'll find a way to work around you with the 26 members working together. And you're right, the 20 billion doesn't add up to 50 billion. I think the idea is that this would be the first tranche to sort of get it out the door. And I do think that that kind of threat of working outside the kind of EU 27 has worked. Um, and I think this is a pretty significant climb down uh, by Orban to say, okay, well, every year I'm going to have a veto. And you're totally right. This is him looking for hostages that he can he can hold on to. Um, and I think there's no doubt that he's willing to shoot this, this hostage in the terms of Ukraine. But my guess is like they'll EU will probably say yes here and get to a deal in February where there'll be Orban will have some ability to hold things up, but the e, but if he does, then the EU could also potentially work around it. What this will mean is that it will put a lot actual actually a lot will be riding on you know future elections like or or, or the formation of the Dutch government, the European Parliament elections, and then how whether Orban would ever be backed up by another country that then would be unwilling to go through the kind of EU 26 path and work outside of, of, the, of the European Council. Exactly. There would be more political considerations entering the fray, and that's also why it's not, it's, it's just not the preference. So I think we'll see. Uh, I think what was interesting, because I'd like to ask you about the U.S. side as well, which is really important in this equation as well, is we saw some comments from Jim O'Brien, who's the Assistant Secretary for European and Eurasian Affairs at the State Department, tell reporters that they're disappointed that Prime Minister Orban has chosen to stand alone in the European Union questioning the fight to support Ukraine uh, and Ukrainians. I find that to be a positive development and to get this kind of statement from the U.S. side. However, we also know that funding on this side has been difficult. So where do we stand on that? Well, you know, I, I, I firmly agree with the Assistant Secretary O'Brien's statements, but this is where sometimes the diplomats on the U.S. side uh, pledging how steadfast the United States will be in support of Ukraine, which I think they have every intention to be, uh, can't necessarily write the check, right? Uh, and it's Congress that writes the check. And so right now, the U.S. has a real problem. Uh, the Biden administration has a real problem. Uh, Ukraine has a real problem, and that's right now. It looks very unclear how Ukraine funding passes Congress, and I think if you follow and track most sort of savvy congressional reporters that are in the weeds, not on Ukraine or foreign policy issues, just on like how Congress works, they're uh, like unbelievably skeptical that anything will get through. And I think we need to sort of back up and how we got here. You know, for the a year, I have been very skeptical that Congress and the Republican-controlled Congress would ever be able to pass funding. The last uh, Ukraine funding bill that passed was in December of 2022, and Nancy Pelosi was Speaker of the House, not Kevin McCarthy. And as soon as Kevin McCarthy struggled to become Speaker uh, and had all those votes that we saw in January, which then blew up uh, in October, what it meant is you had a Speaker that was very weak, had very little control. And I think what you saw between January and October was the White House thinking that it was going to be able to get funding through, especially when it came time to fund the government by October 1st. And so hence the White House was, 
I think, engaged with Kevin McCarthy. Now, there's been talk of whether there's a secret deal between Biden and McCarthy. I have no idea. But it does seem that the White House was trying to not make Ukraine a political issue. So they weren't trying to go on the stump and say Ukraine is so important and Republicans should should move on Ukraine funding. They were trying to make it sort of to they were trying to depoliticize the issue. And maybe that was McCarthy saying, please depoliticize this because, you know, I want to get the funding through. But if you make it a political issue, it'll make it harder for me. Whatever it was, that didn't work. So what you saw was administration trying to link Ukraine funding to funding the government. On October 1st, that failed because they didn't have a shutdown. What happened was uh, government stayed open. There was a short-term continuing resolution, but they didn't do it with Ukraine funding. And Democrats weren't willing to shut down the government for Ukraine funding. That was the bluff that McCarthy uh, called essentially the Democrats' bluff. Uh, and that, so Ukraine funding and government funding got decoupled. Then you fast forward a week to October 7th in Israel. Uh, and so the next strategy to get the funding through was to link it to Israel funding, which, you know, Israel funding is very popular in Congress. It, it's it's uni- universal support for the for the three and a half billion dollars that the United States provides to Israel uh, uh, every year. But the Gaza war gradually became less popular. So it became hard for Biden to go out and say, I really need Ukraine funding because I really need Israel funding because Israel funding became less popular. And it's also unclear whether that's super essential to how the to to Israel's ability to continue operations. In fact, it probably isn't uh, 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 essential for, for Israel to have that money. So there's been no urgency to get that funding through. And the fact that the war became sort of unpopular, the, the Israel-Gaza war, uh, meant that Biden wasn't on the stump for it. It didn't work as leverage. Then they tried to tie border funding to it uh, because, you know, Republicans want more funding for the border. So it was another enticement in this supplemental bill. The problem was that then Republicans said, well, we don't want just funding. We want policy changes. That then kicked off a whole effort in the Senate uh, to create uh, immigration reform, a new sort of broad immigration bill hasn't been done in 40 years. This is one of the thorniest domestic policy issues. And you had a new Speaker of the House, Speaker Johnson, saying, well, you know, I I would really like to do Ukraine funding, saying this directly to Zelensky, but we really have to deal with our border. So Speaker Johnson basically told the Senate this week that any Senate bill that is a cop, would have to be a compromise bill is dead on arrival in the House, and he would only pass H.R. 2, which is this this very right-wing Republican immigration bill. And But he's already connected immigration reform to Ukraine funding. So where we are is the Speaker of the House is essentially trying to deflect blame, I think, for not passing Ukraine funding. And now you have a political dynamic in which the political dynamic on immigration reform is Democrats actually want to pass a bill to try to get the issue sort of uh, done and dusted. But Republicans actually want to keep the issue alive politically because it's good for them politically. So the incentives work in all like in, in the wrong way. And on Ukraine funding, the problem is that the blame game for who to blame for Ukraine funding uh, not happening. Well, I think it's fairly clear. But right now, Speaker Johnson could say, well, look, I you know, set out demands. We need to deal with our border. And that's not being d- dealt with. So uh, so hence, uh, the, the introduction and linking of border policy to Ukraine funding has just complicated everything, has meant it, that there isn't a clear message. And so right now, I think there's a lot of skepticism about how uh, Ukraine funding uh, about whether it's going to happen and whether uh, Speaker Johnson will ever bring a, just a Ukraine funding bill to the floor. I think that's, well, also not to mention the fact that Speaker Johnson just 
was never really groomed to be speaker and he doesn't necessarily have all the political leverage that a traditional speaker would have. So he has very complicated coalitions to play with. And my understanding is in Congress, they're going to be working hard in the next two months really just to focus on regular appropriations, not all the quote-unquote extracurriculars for border, for Ukraine, for Israel. That's not even top line. They have so much to do just for FY24, after which they have to jump into FY25 planning. So all the appropriators are just busy with that, uh, which is not a great signal to send. But I think what's interesting to me here is that there seems to be willingness here and there, but the, the political gears are what's preventing a solution. In the meantime, what you see a lot in the press is this term of Ukraine fatigue. Are we reaching Ukraine fatigue? And it's interesting because some European diplomats are getting really annoyed at that, saying that that is turning into a self-fulfilling prophecy because there's work that is being done to try to get funding, at least on the Europe side, because EU funding has now matched or is close to matching US funding for Ukraine from the beginning. And they're afraid that's also playing into Russian propaganda, that the West no longer wants to support Ukraine, when we can see that, at least on in Europe, support for Ukraine is quite high. I think 74% of EU citizens back continued support for Ukraine. We're looking at a situation where there's not real Ukraine fatigue among the public, but the political situation is preventing us from making really, really important moves for Ukraine to be able to plan, not just on the battlefield, I think it's important to reiterate, it's also for them to keep up civil administration, keep things somewhat running while they're at war on the front lines so that they emerge from this potentially not completely destroyed. I know, I think you're exactly right. Well, first, just on the government funding, that right now, Johnson's position is so tenuous that it's not even clear he can pass a, another short-term uh, government funding measure. So we may have a, the government shut down at the end of the week, and we just experience a snow day here in Washington. Not great for Congress that is is going to you know is trying to 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 get a ton done. Ton yeah, done. well, just flights are really messy, so logistics are hard for even members to get in. Right, and we may get some more snow on Friday, which then maybe they can't get out of town. But the whole thing is that. There is some talk of, you know, uh, hardline Republicans actually getting rid of Johnson and voting for another motion to vacate, which would remove him. So the, the dynamic here for him is that he has a very tough vote to just get keep the government open. And the last thing he's going to want to do is then go and say, hey, we need to do another tough vote on Ukraine funding, uh, hardline Republicans. Um, and those hardline Republicans are against, or far right Republicans are against uh, funding Ukraine funding. And could topple him. And that's the basic political dynamic. I, I completely reject, actually. I think the notion that there's Ukraine war fatigue and no one wants to fund Ukraine funding anymore. No, it's just that we have a dysfunctional House right now that has one of the slimmest majorities ever. And the Republican Party is not coherent on this issue. And so hence you have um, just a complete lack of of government being able to function. And I keep hearing from diplomats being like, well, how would it be possible that when there's 75% of the politicians in this town support Ukraine funding, that won't happen because of this dysfunction, not because like American public opinion is going soft. And I think that leads to maybe just a closing point is that I think if Ukraine funding is going to happen, something's going to have to shift. So either the Ukraine war regains the headlines in the United States because of Ukrainian cities being pummeled, 
Um, and the, the lack of artillery and other things is really having an effect. We're starting to see stories like that in the New York Times and others. Uh, and I think it needs to really gain, regain attention where Republicans then are like, well, we could pay a political cost here for basically having Ukraine lose the war and the deaths of civilians. And the White House, I, I just saw, is going to convene a meeting tomorrow. That, well, the, t- we're recording this on Tuesday. Tomorrow will be Wednesday with uh, all the the congressional leaders to talk about a national security supplemental. So we shall see. So I think the White House hasn't like given up on this and they're going to make another push. But it's clear that the current path to trying to get a Ukraine supplemental by just linking it to Israel and border was not wor- is not going to work. And so there, a new approach is probably needed or something drastic has to change in Ukraine that like wakens uh, people up to the, to the need for this. But with that, why don't we transition to our fantastic interview uh, with my good friend Marcus Roberts from YouGov, uh, where we talk about almost everything in, in European politics, except for the UK, which we're going to put a pin in and, and save for another time. Joining us today is a good friend, Marcus Roberts, who is Chief of Public Data at YouGov. He was previously uh, a Director of International Projects at YouGov and has worked in a variety of roles in politics in both the UK and the United States, uh, as well as uh, been affiliated and associated with several think tanks and campaign groups across Europe and America. Marcus, thanks so much for joining us today on the Eurofile. Max. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, um, and it's very exciting to do this at the start of, of, of what is literally, uh, as President Biden might say, the most exciting and biggest year of elections that the planet has ever seen. We're going to see nearly 3 billion people eligible to go to the polls this year worldwide. Um, the number in reality that actually show up will be a fraction of that. Um, but it still makes pollsters like me very excited for the year ahead. Um, I'm looking forward to getting into it over uh, Europe and, and the UK in the course of this podcast. Marcus, I, I really enjoy your infectious enthusiasm. I think most people, though, are approaching 2024 election years with a, a, a degree of trepidation. Uh, and I think in Europe, there's a, a real sense of foreboding that we're in the midst of a new uh, rise of anti-establishment, far-right political parties that are uh, on the march and set to sort of take over European politics. I wonder how you see that and whether you think there's sort of a clear trend of of the far-right really emerging in European politics, because to me, it's not not quite so clear. I agree with you, Max. I think that this is very different from the 2016 moment that saw Brexit, Trump and the like um, in in the wake of um, immigration dominating as the super issue of the mid 2000s as it was then. That's not to say that immigration isn't a really serious issue now, but it's playing out somewhat differently and maybe we'll get into that. My central projection at the moment for how the European Parliament elections would play based not just on YouGov's polling tracking of this, but on poll of polls projections as well, taking the averages of everything together, is that you would see, uh, in all likelihood, Ursula von Linden uh, achieve re-election on behalf of her 
uh, EPP group. Um, that is, uh, for, for listeners, um, a, a little less aware of the alphabet soup of, soup of acronyms that European Parliament politics represents, the centre-right and traditional conservative bloc of parliamentarians in the European Parliament. But and, and this is the critical difference, because that might sound like bad news for the left or for liberals straight off the bat. It's different from 2016 because they're not just fishing directly anymore from the left. They're fishing partly from the far right and partly from the center, from that old style uh, European liberal bloc in the middle. So what we would expect to see is the party of European socialists, some of the far left and the European People's Party bloc, the center right led by the incumbent president of the European um, institutions, Ursula von Linden, remain largely unchanged in terms of seat numbers. Uh, but we expect to see some growth in the far right in that parliament. And we expect to see some loss of the, of the middle and of sort of the fringes and independent groups as a consequence. That isn't a great picture for, for anti-right activists, but that's a markedly different picture from the, the sort of um, liberal hellscape that a decade ago represented in, in, in our politics. Yeah, and it, it also sort of points to, I think, the right, the far right emerging, becoming, I think, a bit stronger, but not necessarily taking over uh, over the kind of political landscape. I'm curious, though, how you see the elections in the Netherlands, where Gert Wilders, uh, sort of a longtime far-right uh, political leader, emerged as the, the lead candidate, and his party was quite clearly on top. Um, his share of the vote wasn't, you know, uh, uh, I think above 30%, but still the predominant party in, in Dutch politics. What, do you, what, what was your kind of main takeaway from, from that election? Yeah, I think I think um, understanding the Netherlands is is critical as a case example, as probably I would argue Sweden is, um, to getting again why this is different from from that moment in 2016, eight years ago, that led to so much rupture um, across our politics, and that's because the in in both the Netherlands and in Sweden, there's some very real issues associated um, with uh, extraordinary growth in refugee numbers, extraordinary growth in economic migrant numbers, um, serious pressure, understandable pressure on wages and public services that leads to very logical, very rational reactions on the part of voters who say to governments, do you have control over this issue? And, and, and this is critical because all of the, our data shows that the question of control is far more important than the question of numbers. It's the sense that the numbers are out of control because there's no limit to them that drives a lot of concern on the part of voters, rather than the sense that um, this number is particularly high or this number is, is in a different place. And that's because uh, mainstream politicians for a long time have failed to prosecute an argument that they are in control of their countries, their borders, um, their immigration policies, their refugee policies. Uh, and, and with climate change politics only pushing more people north um, out of Africa and the Middle East, with the security situations in those regions, pushing more people with the economic opportunities that you can find um, north rather than south, pushing people in larger numbers, um, and with the very serious structured problems of, of gangs and people trafficking. Um, resulting in all of this, let alone some of the push factors of, of first come, first served uh, to amnesty for, for migrants and refugees. 
that the Merkel administration left Europe as a legacy with, uh, you can see why voters would be worried about this. But I actually take some encouragement from this because this to me sounds like a public policy problem that should be solvable. Uh, a combination of um, investment in border control, a combination of investment in public services, a combination in serious efforts to integrate, not just to welcome the refugees, but to make them part of our communities, to ensure that job opportunities don't result in lower wages for, for, for native workers, uh, that is to say workers who were born in those countries rather than the migrants. All of those are public policy solutions that are very much within the normal trends um, and bounds of both the centre-right and the centre-left. That, to me, says these are solvable problems as opposed to existential questions. And, and finally, I'd say, Max, and maybe we'll come on to Sweden in a second, that what the Dutch example gives us um, is a warning of what could happen if politicians try to change the subject or say that there's nothing we can do about these issues or that people who raise concerns about these issues are simply racist. And instead, it warns us that politicians of the mainstream centre-left and centre-right need to engage on these issues, offer solutions on these issues, offer people a sense of control on these issues, and that shifts the subject matter out of numbers and into a sense of, of, of sovereignty, control, welfare, and indeed fairness. That's critical in terms of being responsible to our human rights obligations in all of this as well. So, Marcus, you just mentioned this. The good news is this is a public policy problem that we can solve, that we can do something about. When I hear that, and maybe that's a U.S. bias from spending so much time here, my immediate question is, is this something voters will understand? If there are policy solutions that are presented to this, are they breaking through? Are there media environments and political environments that allow the solutions to break through and voters are ready to listen to this? Or are they more in the mood to say, I don't care, I just want them out entirely? Something, I mean, I'm exaggerating, obviously, but a sharper response to this. Or are they willing to listen to the public policy problems that can sometimes get, um, or solutions that can sometimes get wonky? Yeah, and I think you've really hit the nail on the head here because um, in the absence of any sense of control over the issue, in the absence of any sense of vision for the country that, that, that covers these difficult subjects, voters will turn to the far right and they do turn to the far right. I'd say there's probably a two twin track approach needed here. One um, is giving voters that sense of control and that's um, about a politics more of position on the issue of, of the rhetoric that you use and of your understanding um, at the emotional level of the importance of this issue and less the specifics of what you do policy-wise. Um, uh, when you change the subject out of immigration or refugees, you're demonstrating that you want to have nothing to do with it and you don't engender a sense of control. When you engage with the subject, say that you understand it, that you're working on it, that you appreciate it, even if you can't solve it overnight, you show a level of engagement that means you don't cede that ground to the far right, which is critical. Um, and, and, and so that's track one, the politics of position. And then track two, it buys you time for the politics of policy to happen. It buys you time to actually fix these problems, which are not just related to your border, they're related to cost of living. Because as critical as the immigration issue is for so many voters going into 2024, the super issue this year is cost of living. It is the economy as it affects household incomes and real people's lives and their everyday pocketbook. So you've got a chance there to use all the levers of the state 
and all the levers of, of, of European uh, polity to do something on gas prices, to do something on heating bills, to do something on wages, to do something on getting inflation under control so prices come down and there's more money in your pocket in real terms. As we all know, when you've got a stronger, more prosperous economy at the bottom out and from the middle out, you have less problems in terms of your cultural integration and in terms of your politics of immigration and your politics of refugees. So what you're also doing is you're buying time for your economic policy to kick in and make a difference to people's real lives. So what I'm saying the path ahead here is that you acknowledge voters' pain on this, you appreciate the, the, the real concerns that they have, separate from the concerns of those voters who are still a minority who are actually racist. Um, and then you engage long-term on solving the problems of, of border control, illegal refugees and, and migrant flows and the like, and maybe quotas might be a big part of that solution in terms of ease of, and fairness of burden sharing across the European Union, whilst critically addressing the center of gravity which is the economy as it affects real uh, real life uh, voters. And that's the key thing, because in 2016, when we saw ruptures across European politics and, and the world over, it was just about um, immigration to, as, as a super issue. And now I would argue the super issue is the cost of living, and that's far more fertile territory for centre-left and centre-right parties of responsible government to engage with and make a difference on. Marcus, one of the kind of narratives that came out of, I think, the Dutch election was that if you make the election about migration and, and immigration uh, as uh, the center-right uh, party, you know, Mark Rutte's sort of uh, successor did, and Mark Rutte, uh, you know, he, he, re he resigned and then called for elections in part over, over a migration issue, that the center-right tends to lose out to the far-right, and that it's better to just simply not make uh, the election to try to not focus the election on that issue. It sounds like what you're saying is it, that's sort of difficult to do. It's not simply a case of, of prioritizing messaging about a various topic that, you, that migration and immigration and, and were major topics and that, that they, you kind of have to address them headlong. And it's not just about, you know, parties, center right and center left parties sort of trying to shift the focus of the conversation. Yeah, I, I, I said it's true. The voters choose the topics of an election, the politicians and the strategists and even the pollsters for all their, their wannabe power do not. Um, and if the voters tell you that, that immigration is a major issue, you've got to engage on it. You can't just say, I'd rather talk about healthcare instead. But that's not all that voters are telling us. They're telling us the number one issue right now is cost of living. And they're telling us that immigration uh, and refugees is a critically important issue. Uh, the two are not unconnected. It gives you a chance to acknowledge both and deal with both effectively. You probably have a larger toolbox on the economic side than you do on, on the immigration side, but one will definitely help the other. Um, I think the mistake that, that particularly the PDVA, that is the Dutch Labour Party, the, the main party of the, the left, fell into in the Dutch elections was that even as Rutte was talking about immigration, um, and even as Wilders was exploiting immigration, the PDVA was not prosecuting an argument on the rights failure on immigration. Um, and that's very different from offering um, your solution on the lefts um, or liberals or center left would handle immigration. But it, it does tell the voter that you don't even care about pushing the right for their failures on this, and therefore they look elsewhere. 
I think there's a marked difference here between um, that which the PDVA did and that which, say, Keir Starmer's Labour Party is doing in the UK, where there is a relentless, even ruthless push on the Conservative government's failures in this area. Now, that's not going to win a lot of voters over um, to UK Labour on the issue of immigration, but it is going to demonstrate to voters that the UK Labour Party uh, is aware of their concern, and it's going to give them a reason to not vote for the right or the far right, as the centre-left is prosecuting an argument on that even as it's making the mainstay of its argument around cost of living. And so that's a different way to think about this as an issue and, and what I think was the PDVA failure in, in the Netherlands um, to not just play a politics policy, but to actually play a good old-fashioned politics of attack on the incumbent government and on the far right on this issue. It also seems to me that there's been a degree of normalization of some of these far right parties over the last decade that, you know, I think if you were if I were to probably characterize what we saw in 2016 is sort of a politics of fragmentation. A lot of the traditional center right, center left parties that had dominated the European landscape. You know, if you just look at France, for instance, you know, those two parties don't really exist anymore. Uh, and so what we've sort of seen in, in that vacuum, far right parties had emerged and they've now been around for a while and in some ways professionalized, soften their edges, maybe not so much in the Netherlands. Well, I guess to a degree also in the Netherlands with Wilders sort of looking like a more calm figure that had been around for a while as Ruta and um, in the, the leader, Sigurd Kog of D66 and, and Hoekstra, all the major uh, political figures of the previous coalition all resigned. And so there's a bit of a political vacuum. But maybe in Sweden as well with the, the Swedish Democrats and, and with Maloney um, sort of running more mainstream campaigns. Is that uh, also uh, at play here that, you know, maybe the far right is just not quite as uh, coming across as radical anymore? They're not as anti-EU. They're not calling for uh, for Italy to leave the European Union, for instance. Yeah, I think that's that's really astute um, because you see an incumbency problem for the far right the more they get dragged towards normalcy of government and, and, and responsibilities uh, there. And I think it's it's important to think about how Mademoiselle Le Pen has uh, suffered as she has gone onto the stage one too many times at least um, as the torchbearer of the far right in France. I think that uh, Maloney um, is having to tack uh, centre to a greater extent than she probably would like to because of the necessities and exigencies of, of government. That could cause her problems in due course. And then the Swedish Democrats, and Sweden's a really important uh, story here. The Swedish Democrats are discovering that it's one thing to just rail and rage against everything in opposition. It's another thing to end up uh, with the most seats in your block in that parliament and, and de, de facto run a shadow prime ministership um, over the, the Conservative Party there and still try to implement an insurgent's agenda and take an insurgent's banner uh, and mantle for your political position. And what is happening in Sweden at the moment, for, for listeners who may not be aware, is they're suffering from a gun crime epidemic that is, is truly staggering and, and truly horrifying. Um, and what's making it particularly tragic in terms of liberal sensibilities is the extent to which that gun crime epidemic um, is driven by uh, migrant crime and gang violence. Um, from uh, people who were not born in Sweden. And that's a very painful truth for uh, Swedish and, and, and European liberals to acknowledge. 
but there's a real necessity for uh, the state in Sweden to regain even, I would say, as fundamentally as the monopoly of violence in that country in order to get it back onto a more normal politics. And until I think that happens, um, you will see protest votes even again in, in the face of the incumbent effect um, uh, benefiting the Swedish Democrats simply because they're talking the toughest on the issue. It's one thing for them to talk the toughest on the issue. Uh, it's another thing for, say, Swedish Social Democrats, the, the main opposition party in Sweden, uh, equivalent of the Labour Party or centre-left uh, parties of, of mainstream European politics, to offer a sense of control on the crime issue as well to voters. And that's probably their primary path back. Um, the Swedish Social Democrats are trusted on the economy, trusted on healthcare, trusted on welfare, trusted on education. But they're not trusted the way they need to be on crime. And then the last thing I'd say across the continent as a whole, and this gives some more hope for where we're headed in our politics from a, a liberal sensibilities perspective, is that climate issue. We see climate change still outpaced as a top issue by immigration and by the super issue of cost of living. But that rising importance of climate change in the environment gives an opportunity for Greens um, and new progressive forces in European politics to perform very well in this year's European Parliament elections if they were able to tap into that energy, particularly amongst young voters and rising co electoral coalitions of voters in a way that previously hasn't been the case when that issue has not been as important to voters as it is now. Um, but that's a real opportunity to create a different electoral coalition to defeat the far right, certainly. On the Greens, I find that interesting. I, I'm from Belgium and I was just there for two and a half weeks over the break and climate is at the forefront of a lot of my friends' uh, minds. But when I think about green parties across Europe, except probably in Germany because they are in power now, I also wonder if there's a bit of a, an incumbency challenge for them because they've been so used to either being out of power and having that one issue they pursue all the time and not having to be challenged on other issues or they've been the, the junior partner in a coalition at the regional level, for example, in Belgium, the, the Green Party has, and Wallonia specifically, they've been in power, but just not very active. So I'll be curious to see that. But I, I want to try to transition us towards what's coming in 2024, especially in the European Parliament. And when you were talking about immigration being um, something that all parties have to engage and engage with, to at least try to push back against the far-right claims. Obviously, recently we saw this really controversial bill that was passed in France, and I'm wondering if you agree with a lot of commentary that came out at the time, which is Macron is playing on the far-right's turf, he gave them a huge victory, or on the contrary, is this a situation where actually voters will see this and think, huh, the center has finally engaged on this and done some things that we agree with, maybe we should give them a chance, And therefore, is that a model for other liberal parties, central parties in Europe that could give a little bit more life back into a group like Renew, for example? I, I understood exactly where um, Macron was heading at the start of that legislative process. I didn't understand at all where he had wound up at the end of that legislative process. And, and what I mean by that is, at the beginning, I think it started exactly like that, like you said, 
um, that it was a serious attempt to show engagement on the issue and to say, like, look, we're, we're, we're not powerless here. There's things we can do that will promote integration, that will, will give voters a sense of control, that will allow the economic opportunities to flow f- freely and fairly as well, so that what benefits an, uh, a migrant um, doesn't harm someone uh, who was born in this country originally. And that struck me as a very sensible piece of political positioning, where I think the bill ended up. And I think there's been some really good work and, and writing on this by the, our friends at More in Common, the European think tank community group, is that the bill ended up as a whole lot of dog whistle politics about far right done in a milk toast fashion. So a kind of watered down uh, far right uh, anti-migrant agenda became what that bill ultimately was in the end. And I don't think that was helpful because I do think that just fed um, into the narrative and into the advantages of the far right, um, as opposed to doing something different, which is to say, we need control over this issue. We need the numbers to be reasonable. We need wages to not be affected at the low end. We need public services to be properly resourced. And you know what? If you come to France, you should be speaking French and you should be uh, you should be adhering to French national law and French national custom. And all of that, it was an opportunity, I thought, at the beginning of the legislative process to essentially do a grand bargain on a lot of this stuff in which you say rights on one side, responsibilities on the other. And it ended up with a lot of uh, uh, not so much walk softly and carry a big stick as just carry a big stick and shout about it all the time. That, I think, probably just helps the far right. I don't actually see an opportunity to calm that politics down, especially with the fight that we saw over the bill. I saw an opportunity. I saw the reality instead being the inflammation of that politics. And the whole point of what I'm trying to suggest here is means by which the emotional temperature on the immigration and refugees issue can be decreased rather than increased. And if your policy agenda, and sad to say that even our friends in Mete's otherwise very successful government um, in Denmark, have fallen into this trap. When you're unnecessarily mean to people, when you're forcing Muslim kids to eat ham sandwiches, when you're taking jewelry off people on the doors of, of airports as they're walking into your country because they don't have money otherwise, and you're saying this is the fee that you have to pay to enter this land, you're not treating people with dignity and, and respect, and you're not leading to a more humane politics. Um, and there is and you don't need to know this from a data perspective, of course there's an overwhelming supermajority of voters who appreciate the dignity and respect of other people, um, even um, uh, if they're arriving in the country uh, under rushed or difficult circumstances, indeed, sometimes especially because of that. Uh, And so the last thing I'll say on this is that in our polling, and and Max is aware of this a little bit from, from work we've done previously for the Global Progress and Center for American Progress, shows that when you say to voters, here's the deal, on the one hand, migrants and refugees need to learn our language, need to adhere to national laws, need to respect our, our, our cultural customs. But on the other hand, at the point at which we've granted them legal entry, they're part of our society, they have, they have rights here, and, they've got, and, and they'll be afforded the opportunities to integrate appropriately. You get strong levels of support, yet really strong levels of support, even amongst a measure of far right voters. So there is a grand bargain to be struck on this issue. I don't think that's what Macron's bill achieved. Marcus, there's like five issues that I want to hit. Uh, We're running out of time, so I'm not going to be able to hit all of them. But I wanted to 
get your thoughts on uh, Ukraine war support uh, um, across across Europe. Also, to brief reflections maybe on the Polish elections and what does that mean perhaps going forward? It seems like Poland was, uh, you know, sort of uh, pushed back against obviously a, a far right government um, and ran a very a campaign that, I, that in my view was centered on uh, support for the European Union and the European project. And then also would like your maybe uh, reflections on the current state of German politics, because uh, that I think is probably where there's a lot of concern, not just about the far right, but also uh, the far left now with a a new charismatic leader and how you see kind of, you know, the German politics uh, right now playing out in the in the broader uh, framework of European politics. So there's a lot on the table. Maybe we start with Ukraine, Poland, Germany uh, to, to close us out. Just, just some light and easy uh, fastballs from you there, Max. Okay, on Ukraine, European voters um, are generally, I wouldn't say satisfied, but I would say they're not dissatisfied uh, with how their governments are handling um, the politics of security and defense uh, at this time. Public support for the war in Ukraine and for Ukraine's defense against Russia's invasion remains strong, uh, even in the face of higher gas prices, higher energy costs, higher costs of living generally. Um, This is something that a lot of pollsters, including myself, are somewhat surprised by. Um, I really thought that by now, the far right would have been able to exploit um, Ukraine's effect upon domestic politics to a greater extent. We'd see see significantly less support uh, for Ukraine. That has not transpired. So that's that's very encouraging. Um, there's still particular bastions of strength, strong support for Ukraine and particular worry spots for Ukraine. In Sweden, 63% of voters um, tell YouGov that they want to see Ukraine achieve a total victory, uh, whereas in Italy, that number is only 29%. Italy has always had the lowest level of support for Ukraine, and Sweden uh, and Nordics have always had the highest levels of support. We continue to see that trend borne out. So that's that's Ukraine in a nutshell. Then the next uh, on Poland, I think there's two ways of looking at the Polish election results. One is this was really encouraging. Uh, it shows that the far right overstepped on the politics of abortion. It shows that the far right missed the mood on climate change. It shows that the far right had made a serious error with regard to European integration and the European Union itself, and that ties with Orban. Um, are not the way to go with regard to Polish voters. That's the the glass half full analysis of the Polish election and why what happened happened. Then there's the glass half empty analysis, which is incumbents the world over are getting the hell kicked out of them. <laughs> and, the, and the Polish government wasn't incumbent and therefore it got the hell kicked out of it. Now, I'd like to think that politics has pushed me for you and that it's a little bit of both, but I tend to think that government failure procedures opposition success. And therefore, if we were really looking at what happened in Poland, I say it's first much more to do with the fact that the Polish government was was, uh, overseeing a cost of living crisis and all the economic hardship. And secondly, they screwed up on a lot of those issues we were just talking about before I would get on to the third point, which is, was there a larger than expected liberal constituency for these values that we're talking about? Yes, that's true. Was that the overwhelming reason why that election result happened? I don't think so. The last thing I'd say is on Germany, Chancellor Scholz has gone from the luckiest politician in the world to the politician that cannot catch a break. 
he needed that election in which he became chancellor to be held at that precise time in, 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 and with that precise political alignment of forces, votes, everything from, from the way that the ballot worked out in, in the lender and the constituencies um, through to um, the election being on that day of the week as opposed to any other in which, per the polls, you might have had a very different uh, result. So he lucked out there, not to say he didn't do very smart politics, he definitely did in order to, to put himself in a position where he could exploit that good fortune. Um, but having having had that, uh, everything from the constitutional court um, on down has reigned with misfortune for him. That said, where is this going? Uh, there's still no great enthusiasm for the union, that is the, the CDU and CSU, the, the main conservative opposition um, to the traffic light coalition in Germany led by um, the Social Democrats, the main left-wing chancellor, uh, Olaf Scholz. But there doesn't need to be a great deal of enthusiasm for the opposition if, once again, that anti-incumbent thing we were just talking about in the context of Poland uh, uh, kicks in. And that's, I think, why you see nearly a 10-point poll difference between the the Social Democrats of Olaf Scholz, the government, um, being down at around 20%, and the the union, um, CDU and CSU, being up at around 30% or even higher. What does that mean for the election? It means that the most likely uh, uh, outcome at this time is still that it, that in the lender elections, that is the big state regional elections of this year, the SPD will continue to get a kicking. Um, the Greens are, are suffering from that incumbency effect a little bit as well. Although I would say that they're more successful than a lot of countries because they benefit from strong leaders because um, uh, Robert Habeck and Anna Baerbock are uh, such good personalities for them that they're, they, they can give them a sense of, of definition and politics that exists beyond the environmental agenda alone and into this sphere of ec economics properly. And that really will help boost their numbers, I think, as they, they face voters. Um, but if you're Olaf Scholz right now, you're, you're probably uh, more than a wee bit worried and waiting for your luck to change because you do you really do need it if you're hoping to 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 recreate the magic that led you to your election in the first place. Well, Marcus, that was uh, a European tour de force of this, the political scene. Uh, we didn't get to the UK uh, political situation, but I think we'll, we'll hopefully be able to have you back to go deep on on the UK political environment and, and potentially UK elections, which uh, I guess Rishi Sunak now says will be in the second half of the year. So it gives a little bit of time before we have that, uh, have that conversation. I'd be thrilled to. I really enjoyed this. And thanks so much. Always great seeing you guys. Great. Thanks, Marcus. Thank you, Marcus. That's it for today's episode. As always, if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. You may also be interested in our sister podcast, Russian Roulette, which covers the latest on Vladimir Putin's Russia and the ongoing war in Ukraine. Our thanks to our new producer, Sean Folk, and to Otto Svensson for coordinating and researching this episode. We'll be back soon with another assessment of Europe through a Washington lens. Until next time.